We'll get started tonight. We're going to do biblical quote-unquote contradictions. Uh, the quotes are important. But let's go ahead and pray first. Father, we do just thank you for this time. Thank you for this night that we can come before your word again and wrestle with what you have for us. I pray that tonight would be a night of encouragement and a night of increasing faith, um, not increasing doubt. Um, God, as we look at your your word in different parts that at times can be confusing, um, at times can seem like contradictions or like double speak, um, talking out of both sides of your mouth, um, I just pray that you would help us to see that that these words are good for us and, and true and edifying. So would you come, Holy Spirit, and help us as we learn together. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, quick news flash. Next week, we are still on. There was a rumor that we may or may not be, but next week will be the last one. So next week will be the last one, and then we're going to revisit this again with some different themes and subjects. But next week, Levi is going to cover um, some of the Old Testament stuff that he didn't get to um, for his Old Testament section. And there may also be some Q&A too. I know when we've asked questions um, or tried to have that time, there hasn't been that many, which is okay. Um, but last, or next week, if you got questions about any of these things that we've talked about, that would be the time to do it. And maybe Bob and myself and Lee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe we'll do some kind of a tandem Q&A thing. And if there are none, then that's fine. Then Levi will just have what he has and we'll run with that. So, All right. Well, as we know, the Bible is not an easy book. Uh, there are hard things that are said in it. God's Word confronts us. It challenges our biases. It says things that are wrong that the outside culture says are right or vice versa. Um, that sometimes our hearts want to say what's right and then we read something in here and it says that's wrong. And so we get, we get used to being confronted. We really saw that in our, in our series on the Sermon on the Mount um, and just the way that, way that Jesus talks to us and the things he has to say to our hearts. Uh, but God's word, Jesus' words, they're confrontational and hard. But the Bible is... Also, not easy for other reasons as well. As we read it, we find things that either seem circumstantially contradictory, where one biblical author gives a report of an event that seems to contradict the same event that takes place elsewhere in the Bible. So that's one type. Or, there are things that seem like theological contradictions, where one theme in the Bible seems to say, um, the opposite theme in a different section of the Bible. So the Bible doesn't always fit together in neat little categories, and this shouldn't surprise us as the Bible is written from the perspective of various authors in various time periods dealing with various circumstances, uh, which we've seen through these classes. Uh, just the length of time that this book um, was written in so what do we do with these things? Um, tonight we're going to look at that. We're going to look at circumstantial contradictions, quote, and theological contradictions. What is it? What's a contradiction? Webster's, that's where you go when you want to know what something is. Webster says, 
a difference or disagreement between two things which mean that both cannot be true. So that's what a contradiction is. And if we believe that the Bible contains actual contradictions, then much that we've said up to this point in this class and that we believe as a church about the truthfulness of the Bible would be false. We do not believe that the Bible contains actual contradictions. So I want to help us work through things that do seem like apparent contradictions or contradiction in quotes. The Bible itself tells us that it contains hard things to understand. So when we come across things written that are hard to understand, we should not be surprised. And I wonder sometimes why uh, we as Christians don't talk about the difficulties in God's word much. Sometimes I think we can give the perception that you know everything is, is rosy and good. We just believe it. Bible says it. That settles it. End of story. And we can kind of give that perception um, that we got no doubts, there's no difficulties, it's all good. Um, <laughs> Life can be difficult, but sometimes we're afraid to say that the Bible can be difficult too. We wouldn't want to admit that we have doubts or questions um, so as to be thought as weak or immature in the Christian community. Interestingly, it may be because many of us who believe the Bible is the literal Word of God don't actually read it all that much. We treat it as an item of faith to be checked off our belief window, to use a hapgood term, but not as the reason to dive deeply into the scriptures and actually read it regularly. Robert Wethno, he's a professor of sociology at Princeton University, in his 2007 book, After the Baby Boomers, How 20 and 30-somethings are Shaping the Future of American Religion, he noted this disturbing trend. Another notable aspect of biblical literalism that is evident here is the large proportion of biblical literalists, so people that believe that the Bible is literally true, who read the Bible at home less than once a week. To be sure, they read it more often than non-literalists do. Nevertheless, a majority, 51% of biblical literalists, do not consult the Bible on their own even once a week. Believing the Bible, again, appears to be an item of faith more than something grounded in knowledge. That's a problem to be believing that this is utterly true in everything and then not to read it that much. But I wonder if maybe that's a reason why sometimes we don't say, yeah, there's some difficult things here. Can you help me with with this? As we read a few weeks ago, we're going to read again just to remind us that the Bible says this. Peter says, Paul writes hard things to understand in 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16. Peter, talking about Paul. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter says about Paul, hard things, you say. Paul himself agrees because he tells Timothy... To think over what he says. To think over what he says. 2 Timothy 2.7 The last letter written in Paul's ministry. And this is what he says to Timothy. 
Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So Paul is saying, use your mind and God is going to give you understanding. So he's saying, you do something and God does something. So ask Him for help. Don't just do one of them. Don't set thinking against praying. Don't ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you apart from thinking it through. Don't just read other books. Don't just tease out implications rationally. Don't just use your minds. Do both. Think and pray. Do both things. And that's what we should do with God's Word. Another thing that can come up sometimes is if somebody like me says something like this, like the Bible is difficult or the Bible is not an easy book, at times you can get a response. But isn't the Bible simple? Isn't the Gospel simple? Shouldn't we be careful not to overcomplicate things? And yes, we should. Paul, again, says to the Corinthians, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.3 So there is a sense in which this thing is very simple. Abandon yourself, throw yourself on Jesus. Well, simple and also very hard. <laughs> we need to remember that trusting Jesus is not having everything figured out. It's throwing your weakness, it's throwing your sin, throwing your doubts upon His strong shoulders and doing that in faith, trusting Him. We also shouldn't be arrogant to act as if the Bible is not challenging, as if it doesn't present complexities. To ignore questions that come up due to that is not loving to anybody if we act that way as Christians. In fact, some of the reasons why young people leave the church is because they don't get the depth they desire. They settle for simplicity, meaning the church. They ignore hard teachings. They want to make it so comfortable that they're afraid to teach on difficult things. And sometimes that can have the opposite effect. It can actually be a turnoff. Preston Sprinkle in his book, Go, Returning Discipleship to the Front Lines of Faith, that was just published recently, he says this, In many cases, people leave the church not because they had some beef with Jesus or were fly-by-night pseudo-Christians. Then he quotes something here. In fact, 51% of teens who leave the church in their 20s say they left because their spiritual needs were not being met. And then... Sprinkle says at least 23% say that they actually wanted to know more about the Bible when they were in church but didn't get it. End quote. That's a problem. We're not going to be a church like that. We're not a church like that. Depth is not what turns people off to Christianity. Superficiality is what turns people off to Christianity. Avoiding depth and complexity um, and complexity can actually hinder faith rather than increase it. And so we don't want to be that way. Part of the reason why we're doing these classes is not just to feed your mind, but to feed your faith. And so that's the goal. The goal of these classes are not to make things more complicated for us, but to encourage you. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.5. Paul says the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So, in some ways, these classes are an act of love. It's to love us. It's to love us in our minds and then in our, in our hearts. It's important to point out, though, that just me standing here, that just me talking about these things and trying to briefly work out these contradictions shouldn't be enough for you. They shouldn't be enough for you. You don't want to take my word or anybody else's word for it. You need to read the Scriptures yourself. Acts 17.11 speaks to people called the Bereans, 
who examined the Scriptures daily, I believe it says, to, to see that what they had heard was true. So, with some of these, we're not going to be able to get into everything, um, all, all of the issues, but you need to say, yeah, that does confuse me. Yeah, BJ, thanks for your help, but I'm still really confused and that doesn't make any sense. Well, you need to search. Um, you need to test. You need to use the Word of God and ask God for help because He will give us understanding. So what do we do when we find an apparent contradiction in the Bible? There are, there are at least five things. The first two are the most important. Pray. Ask God for help. Two, read other scriptures that may address the apparent contradiction. In other words, interpret scripture with scripture. Scripture itself is its best interpreter and is the only authoritative thing we have for belief and practice. And one of the ways you can do that, one of the first ways to do that, is if you see a contradiction and the author who wrote that book, you see it in another spot where the author also talks, you work it out with the same author. I would say to do that first. And then you would go to other texts in the Bible to try to figure out where that theme or that issue is covered to work it out that way. But, but one way I'm to start with is to say, okay, let's look at, if i got a problem with Paul somewhere, read a bunch of Paul's letters and figure out if he has other stuff to say about it, or John or... Whatever. And that can be helpful because, they, because the, the same author talks similarly and it can help work things out. Number three, figure out the cultural context. Number four, look at the intent of the author to discover why the particular book was written that you find the apparent contradiction in. The reason why that's important is because if you get the whole sense of what, of what the goal was, um, is sometimes that can flesh out maybe why or why not. They didn't cover it in as much detail as you wanted it. Like, why did they write this? Oh, they wrote it because he was in prison and then he was writing to a people that were dealing with this particular false teaching or whatever it might be. And then five, read various biblical scholars, theologians, pastors, other, other people, basically to help you. So, first, we're going to look at what I call circumstantial contradictions. The first one, the circumstances surrounding Judas's death. is a tough one. Matthew 27, 3-10 says, And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, this is speaking of Judas, and he, Judas, went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Matthew 27, 3-10. And then the next one, from Acts. Two different writers. Luke wrote Acts. So the Gospel of Luke and Acts are connected. Matthew, different writer. Um, But we see a difference here. Now this man acquired a field with a reward of his wickedness. Again, this is speaking of Judas. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, whatever you say that. That is field of blood. So first, notice the consistency. Both texts reference Judas dying. That's consistent. Judas is dead. Both texts reference field of blood. So talking about the same area. But there seems to be a contradiction with the way Judas dies, who bought the field, and why the field was named the field of blood. So the way Judas died seems easiest to solve. Um, again, you see one talks about hanging himself, the next one falling headlong, burst open, his bowels gushing out. On the surface, it looks like in one passage, Judas hung himself, and in the other passage, he falls and his bowels 
His guts spill everywhere. But it could be that both happened. He hung himself, and then when he fell, his insides came out. D.A. Carson notes that one church tradition reports that Judas hanged himself from a tree branch that leaned over a ravine of which there are many in the area. So you have a tree, a ravine. And when the branch broke, whether before or after he died, Judas fell to a messy end, end quote. So again, he's talking about a common area, a lot of trees, ravines, hangs himself off one of those trees, falls, and you get the point. So both hanging and falling are simultaneously possible. One way to resolve that. What about the why? Why was the field named Field of Blood? Again, it seems possible that the religious leaders could have named it Field of Blood due to the money being purchased by innocent blood. And others could have associated it with Judas's bloody death. So that could have happened that way. The who. If Judas gave money back to the priests, one could say that Judas bought the field or could choose to say that the priests bought it. Right? One could say either way. If, if a wife hired a group of thugs to kill her husband, and they did so, you could say the wife and the thugs killed her husband. One person, one person may report it and say, the wife did it, the wife killed her husband. And not even t- talk about the fact, well, she actually hired these people and then they went and killed her. And then the other way it could be reported is that the thugs killed the husband. So maybe a similar thing happened there with Judas in saying, um, reporting the... Sanhedrin were the religious leaders as doing it, or him himself with the money and the field. But this is not an easy passage to reconcile. One scholar that I enjoy, who loves Jesus, says, quote, There seems to be no way of deciding which of the two versions, if either is the more factual, attempts to interpret them as literally compatible, do not inspire confidence. However, just because we may know or or, or we may not know exactly how to reconcile it and harmonize the accounts, it does not mean that we have a blatant contradiction. This is what D.A. Carson says. If it is bad historiography to squeeze two diverse accounts of one incident into a contrived union, it is equally bad historiography to mistake an instance of too little information for contradiction. Meaning, these are very small little spots here. Um, and they're not trying to explain all of the details of Judas's death all in one spot. Um, so it's bad history to try to maybe unify it all perfectly and think we know all of the details into those two little verses. But it could also be bad history to say, oh, forget it, it's a contradiction, just because we're talking about two verses here. We're talking about a very small window. So that's, that's one Number two, did the women at the tomb report the resurrection? Did the women at the tomb report the resurrection? Matthew, and this is just going to deal with Matthew and Mark here. Matthew says, So they, speaking of the women, departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Mark, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. So we're not going to get into it in detail, but it's likely that Mark ends at verse 8. And I know Levi mentioned that in the past. Um, You can look at your footnotes. You can look at various scholars on the whys and the what's for that. Um, If it doesn't end there, if it 
if it doesn't in there in verse 9, obviously makes it clear that Mary Magdalene, um, I believe it was, who went out and reported it. Um, but assuming that it does in there, that would look like an apparent contradiction. One says, fear and joy, they, they tell people. The other one says, fear, they say nothing. But again, first notice the similarity. Though Mark does not say joy was a part of the emotional experience, both say fear was a part of the emotional experience, which shouldn't surprise us. Fearful astonishment is normal in a supernatural or divine encounter in Scripture. And we would also see that elsewhere. Fear, just watch a horror movie or some weird reality show where they go in and try to find the ghosts in the particular spot and everybody gets afraid. Fear happens when something supernatural happens. They may also be afraid because they're afraid for their lives and what the Romans would do. But the impression of Mark is that the women don't tell anyone. Now, anyone may have an exhaustive sense, meaning literally anyone and everyone, period, end of story. Mary tells no one else, period. Or it may mean that they don't tell anyone except for the ones the angel said to report it to. Because right before that, the angel says, go tell the disciples. And then Mark fills it in and basically says, and they go away afraid not telling anyone. So the quote that I think I put in the handout is from David Garland, and he kind of helps us with this, I think. Unlike the leper, he's speaking earlier um, to, uh, in, in the book of Mark, unlike the leper who disobeyed and spread the news of his cleansing far and wide, and the reason why he says disobeyed, because he was told not to say it, and then he went and just told everybody, the women did not broadcast the resurrection indiscriminately throughout Jerusalem, let alone go to the priests who orchestrated Jesus' death as a testimony to them. They delivered the message only to the disciples and to Peter as they were commanded. This interpretation is supported by the grammar. Mark does not use but, but they said nothing to anyone, which would express disobedience. Instead, he uses and, and they said nothing to anyone which explains what they did not do. This statement simply means that they did not shout the news from the rooftops, but relate it only to the persons the heavenly messenger specified. End quote. So to use another illustration, if I get home one day and a member of the CIA is at my door and they tell me that there's been an alien invasion just in my house and my family is gone, and I see weird markings on the wall and all kinds of stuff. But they also tell me that my parents and Kate's mom are at a safe house in Lolita, but have not been told why they're there. And they go on to tell me, I can go tell them about what happened. It could be described very easily as one who leaves afraid to say nothing to anyone. It could be described that way. If I get home and that actually happens to me. That doesn't necessarily mean that I don't go tell my family what happens. It means that I don't tell anyone else. The stakes are too high. I'd look like a lunatic if I went and just told everybody. I'd leave an event like that. Messenger tells me something. He tells me who to go talk to. Um, this, this supernatural event has happened. Um, aliens have invaded. I would not go tell anyone except for just the people that I was told for the sake of my family. So that could be an example of the reason why it appears that way. It's not saying that they literally shut their mouths and never talked about it again. Um, it's, just, um, it's just that there's an exception. They went and talked to what the angel told them to talk to. Another thing the author could be using just irony here 
and Garland mentioned it before, um, because there's this thing called the messianic secret that some scholars refer to it as in Mark, where a lot of times Jesus is saying to be quiet about it, don't tell this or that. Um, And it could be that this is irony. One scholar says, Throughout Mark, people spread news that they were supposed to keep quiet. Here, when commanded finally to spread the word, people keep quiet. If the original Gospel of Mark ends here as is likely, it ends as suddenly as it began, and its final note is one of irony. Many other ancient works, including many treaties and dramas, also had sudden endings. End quote. So what is irony? It's the expression of one's meaning by using language that normally signifies the opposite, typically for humorous or emphatic effect. We know the women didn't keep it quiet from the disciples nor from the experience of history itself. And so does Mark and the women who likely told them their story. Maybe he just ended it ironically to say it that way, but everybody actually knows that they went and told people. So, it's a few things there with, with, um, with that particular issue. The third one, one or two blind men, one or two blind men going into Jericho or out of Jericho. Mark 10:46. And they came they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Next one, as he drew near as he drew near to Jericho, So again, one says leaving, this one says near. A a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And I don't think I filled the rest of those in. But Mark 10 and Mark 18, you can look at it in more detail. Basically, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd follows him. I'm sorry, there we go, there it is. Mine looks probably different than yours. Um, Matthew, and as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So those are the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Again, another synoptic problem is a phrase you sometimes hear about trying to harmonize and reconcile different issues like this. But we have a potential problem here in a few ways, the number of blind men and the place of healing. The two issues, the number of blind men and the place of healing. Mark and Luke speak of only one blind man, while Matthew has two blind men. And Matthew and Mark say that the event took place leaving Jericho, and Luke says it was as Jesus arrived in Jericho. Leon Morris helps us with this. He says, if there were two men... One of them may well have been more prominent than the other and attracted more attention so that it was possible to write the story concentrating on him. It does not seem to make a great deal of difference whether it took place as Jesus was arriving at Jericho or leaving. And in any case, there's a complication in that there were two Jerichos. Um, And then I squeeze in a Carson quote. Carson says, an older town on the hill, largely in ruins, and the new Herodian town about one mile away. This isn't very far. The site of Old Testament Jericho, which had been overthrown, and the site nearby of the rebuilt Herodian Jericho. It is not impossible that the miracle was performed as Jesus was leaving one Jericho and approaching the other. So, you could do it a few different ways, but reading it, you could go, wait a second. What in the world? That seems like a clear contradiction. And you go, wait, there's two Jerichos. Oh. And they're really close to each other. (laughs) Um, So that could 
help us with that particular issue and also the prominence of the other person. Which is what um, DefendingInerrancy.com, you can go to that website, I think it's put together by Norman Geisler and some others, or at least he's involved. DefendingInerrancy.com um, they, they give point to the eyewitness nature of the Gospels. Remember we talked about that a lot with the genre. Um, the fact that there's different indications that Mark and others, when they're writing things down, they're taking it from the eyewitness because of the way that it's actually written. You can listen to the previous um, talk on that if you missed that one. Um, but the defending inerrancy guys give point to the eyewitness nature of the Gospels as a reason for why Mark would have specifically highlighted one. And they say the fact that Mark mentions the name of one blind man, Bartimaeus, and his father, Timaeus, indicates that Mark is centering on the one that was personally known to him. Saying, here's this guy, oh, and here's his dad. Letting everybody know. If two men were to receive a Medal of Honor from the President of the United States and one was your friend, it's understandable that when you relate the story, you might only speak of the one whom you knew receiving the medal. It could be that they knew him, maybe the other one, for whatever reason, wasn't known as well, or who knows, maybe Timaeus was a prominent person. Again, we don't know exactly, but it could be that as an eyewitness account, um, that, they are, that Mark's filling in some of the details there a bit more. Did Jesus tell his disciples to take their staves or not? Did Jesus tell his disciples to take their staves or not? This one's a tough one. But I just let me pause for a second. Covered three. Any uh, any questions? Any questions on any of those? No. Yes. Yeah, there's a few different things there. One is they talk about Mark, and I think I mentioned this before, as possibly a priority gospel. Uh, meaning it could have been the first one and they could have been using Mark as well, meaning Matthew and Luke. Could be one reason. Then there's commonalities between um, Mark and Luke as well. And then there's other questions about that that uh, Matthew and Luke have things in common that are not in Mark, but then they're both talking about the same event. So there's other questions around around that. Um, but the point is, is, is they would have been sharing similar stories, maybe even using Mark as a primary source also. Um, but again, um, they're also writing for different reasons and they're going to compile different um, accounts in different ways. So we talked about how Mark may be relaying Peter's words um, because Mark could have been with Peter and there's a lot of indications because Peter comes up a lot in Mark and then there's an early church document that references that possibility um, that it's kind of like Peter's gospel. Um, so there's there's that. Luke, of course, basically says that there was eyewitness accounts as a reason for writing in the very first part of Luke. He's just compiling a bunch of eyewitnesses. He's a doctor. He's trying to do this in a very professional, clear way. Um, and so he's just gathering different different accounts. Um, and some, obviously, would have been more popular than others. I mean, John talks about how how Jesus did so many things we couldn't even record it all in, in the Bible. Then there's also theological reasons of why they may emphasize certain people um, within the Jew and Gentile thing, um, some of the racial issues there to show how Jesus is bringing in everyone. Uh, there's also the issues of Jesus dealing with outcasts and, and people that would normally have to stay outside of the temple, um, um, people that are looked at as utterly sinful, and yet Jesus is bringing in the outcast. He is restoring the outcast. He's having dinner with them. He's sharing a meal 
with them. Um, he's touching them, healing. Uh, so yeah, so there's all kinds of reasons. And then certain authors emphasize maybe the Jewish person more than the Gentile one because they're writing to a particular audience. Um, but anyway, does that help? Any other questions on those ones? Okay. Number four, did Jesus tell his disciples to take their staffs or not? Mark says this. Uh, this is when he's, he's sending them out. Jesus sending out his disciples. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Luke says this, And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Then Matthew, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And I put those in the handout. All these verses, the ones that look contradictory, should be there. So it could be that Mark reporting Jesus as directing his disciples to take the staff one already has. <clears throat> Man, I really, that sentence sounded weird. Um, yeah, so it could be that, that, that Mark is saying, disciples, take the staff you already have. While Matthew and Luke are reporting that Jesus also told his disciples not to purchase or acquire a staff you do not already have. One dealing with you're just taking what you have. The other saying, don't take, as in don't go purchase and acquire something new. This is due to the nature of the verbs used in Matthew and Mark. Matthew's verb has an indication of purchasing, while Mark's doesn't. Vern Poitras has a book called Inerrancy in the Gospels when he tries to work through several of these issues. And he says, in Matthew 10, 9-10, the operative verb is acquire, that is, purchase. The corresponding verb in Mark is take, which Alford, who's another scholar, observes, has not quite the precision of the other verb. They were not to procure expressly for this journey even a staff. They were to take with them their usual stuff only. The difficulty arises partly because of the range of meaning in the verb for take within its sentence. It may or may not include purchasing depending on the context. This difficulty is particularly instructive when we compare Mark and Luke. Mark 6.8 and Luke 9.3 contain the same verb take. They also contain the same word for staff. Mark says you may take. Luke says you may not. Looks like a flat out contradiction. But Matthew introduces the word acquire which shows that there are more dimensions to the process of preparing for the journey. If we did not have Matthew, we might never realize that there was a possible solution to the difficulty, consisting in the difference between acquiring a staff expressly for the journey and merely taking the one they already had. So, thank you, Matthew. <laughs> um, that one's kind of a complicated one. And that one feels a little bit like, man, you're making a whole lot of deal out of those verbs. But again, you're trying to... Well, this is why these come up. Is people are saying, this book came from God. <laughs> there shouldn't be contradictions. And so with that assumption, when you look at apparent things, then you've got to go, okay, why is that? And so that's why they try to dive, dive in, going into these events that may be just a paragraph long, um, which different people are relaying. And you try to dive into words and meanings and context and where's, where's it located and all these different things. Again, because of people 
challenging the integrity of the text rather than just saying, oh yeah, he just reported what that person saw. Um, just like you know, they always say, if there's a car wreck and you listen to different people, they report it different ways, they say different things, they may see only two people and then maybe, they, maybe somebody else reports three, you know, or who else, or it's, you know, the arm looked like it was hurt, but then maybe the blood was coming from somewhere else. I mean, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's all kinds of... You mean you mean the translators of the text? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there two angels at the tomb or just one? Are there two angels at the tomb or just one? So you got John and you got Matthew. There, um, John speaks of two. Matthew speaks of one. So, there's a contradiction. Looking at it from a very simplistic way. Justin Taylor and Andreas Kostenberger, they got a great little book actually called The Final Days of Jesus, The Most Important Week of the Most Important Person Who Ever Lived. It's a great book to read during Easter week. Just kind of walks through all of all of them, the events, and it's not that long. But this is what they say: none of the authors claims to record every word that was spoken, and the words are complementary, not contradictory. Only a hardened skeptic would insist that the angel could not have said everything recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The difference in the number of angels, one or two, inside the tomb, is easily explained by the fact that one angel was more prominent and did all the talking, while the other angel remained silent. Matthew and Mark do not say only one angel was present. And there was no need to be more specific because the focus of the narrative is on what the angel had to say and not how many there were, which again is another issue that with some of these, there's a, there's a point. So they don't need to give every detail of everything. No author claims to communicate every possible detail. So the Gospels don't have to name every person at the tomb. They don't have to name every angel at the tomb. They don't have to say this is exactly what happened. This is the way the weather was. It was 62 degrees. The sun was out. There were this many people. It's not a scientific document trying to give the exhaustive perspective of what happened at that event. It isn't YouTube. Um, We also don't have to speak of exactly how many trips were taken to the tomb and back. Sometimes you'll find that in books of who was there, when, and then there's math. There's, um, you know, John there and and which which of the Marys was it and were they all there at the same time? All those kind of things. Um, you You can look around for that. But, Again, when people want to come against the resurrection of Jesus Christ, well, they're going to go there and say, wait a second, oh, there's a contradiction, forget the whole thing. He said one angel, the other said two, just forget it. And then you're kind of missing the whole point, which we talked about the other time. This is, this is women reporting this, which again in those days uh, meant basically nothing. Um, it shouldn't say anything about whether an event happened or not. Yet that's the whole reason why we're still talking about it today um, shows that, that it is in fact true the women reported it, which if it was false, it would have died very quickly. Um, but it did not. So all potential discrepancies in the Gospels, the Gospels can be, uh, the Gospel writers can be selective in how they report the events and how their particular audience and their particular themes and emphases are written. 
Again, Poitras has a helpful quote on that in his book. And, and you can download it for free online. Um, I, I think I have the footnote in there. Um, inerrancy in the Gospels. Each of the four Gospels gives us the truth about the life of Jesus. No one Gospel is exhaustive, nor does it claim to be. Each is selective. Each makes choices about how it's going to tell the story. Each is interested in highlighting theological significances and relationships to the Old Testament. Matthew is noteworthy for his Jewishness, for his compression, for the introduction of subtle hints of extra significance. Mark is noteworthy for action and for concentration on the main points. A lot of times in Mark, you'll see the word immediately, over and over and over again. Action, it's quick. Luke is noteworthy for care in historical research. John is noteworthy for theological depth in interpreting the significance of the events. Not just saying, here's what happened, but here's what it means. We should also remember that all four Gospels are God's writing, not simply the product of the human authors. The differences between them and their approaches to writing history illustrate that God himself is comfortable with using distinct perspectives in revealing what happened and its significance. The significance in God's mind is infinitely deep. He enriches us by providing us four windows on his wisdom rather than merely one. End quote. And that was Poitras. So, those are, I think those are all gospel contradictions. Um, and that's usually where people go. Um, which also makes sense, because with the epistles and other things like that, a lot of times they're dealing with theology and practice. And it's not just like, here's an event, here's an event, here's an event uh, that's happening. So, the sixth one. This is a fun one. Jesus' statement, this generation will not pass away. This is a tough one. Truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Mark 13.30 So this is a challenging one. It's not an apparent contradiction in terms of the text itself or what somebody else says, but in terms of this verse and the surrounding context seemingly contradiction of future history. It seems like it's a historical contradiction because it didn't happen. While the other contradictions come from reports inside the text, this comes from the circumstances of history outside the text. A simple way to solve the problem would be to say that when Jesus says this generation, he doesn't mean the generation that he was talking to, but just the generation of humanity in general, or, as, or some have said the Jewish people, just the Jewish people as a whole, that that generation of Jewish people wouldn't pass away. That seems wrong to me, just to be honest. Um, I think it's off the wall. It seems most obvious to believe that when Jesus is answering the disciples' question, he is speaking of the living generation of which they are a part. So let's rehearse this. Open, look at Mark 13. We're not going to read the whole thing. And we're not going to talk about Matthew 24 and some of the others. But there's these sections of Scripture in the Gospels where Jesus is basically outlining what a lot of people believe is the last things or his second coming. And there's also indications of the destruction of Jerusalem and then there's debate over how much is what. But Mark 13 um, is probably one of the most compact ways to read what Jesus says there. I'm going to read not all of it, um, but some of it to help frame some of this uh, discussion. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to them, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, blah, 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 blah. He says a bunch. Um, the rest of the verses. Um, I'm going to highlight a few. says a bunch. Then he says, In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. This is 24. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tenderest and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Then he goes on, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Talks about keeping awake for the rest of it. So again, a critic looks at this. I mean, Jesus is getting pretty serious here. Truly I'm saying this to you. This generation's not going to pass away. He's also saying everything can be gone and destroyed. And my words, so again, what I'm saying right here, are never going to pass away. They're never going to be wrong. They're firm. They're fixed. So that's why critics grab here and they say, that generation passed away. The second coming didn't happen. Forget it. Let's forget the whole thing. So there's different ways to interpret this. Um, if all these things to which Jesus refers to in the whole chapter must take place in the current generation, we have some issues. Because many believe that Jesus is referencing both the destruction of the temple and his second coming. The destruction of the temple, remember, that's where we started. That's 13, 1 to 2. A lot of people believe 24 to 27 is referencing the second coming. And maybe other parts in there. We know that the destruction of the temple did take place within that generation. We know that. We, we visited that on our history lesson for um, the New Testament, A.D. 70. So not far, what, 40 years after Jesus. So you could say that that generation did not pass away. The destruction of the temple happened. So if Jesus is referring to both of those things, and he's also talking about that current generation, then then it didn't happen. So here's the deal. The simplest explanation may be that the all things Jesus mentions is a direct answer to the disciples' question in verse 4 about the specific destruction of the temple. When the disciples asked the question to Jesus earlier in the chapter, and again, notice the language, when will these things be? The disciples asked him that in verse 4. Jesus is directly answering their question of the when of these things in verse 30. That this generation will not pass away until all these things, the ones you just asked me about, will take place. He's saying that the destruction of the temple will occur in their lifetime. And did occur. But it still seems a little funny because Jesus said a lot of things between verse 4 and 29. And when you read it, it makes it seem like the whole flow of what he's saying is what he means by all things. That's another way to look at it. So we have a few options here. One is to say that Jesus is referring to the destruction of the temple and the second coming, 24 to 27, but that Jesus moves back and forth between the destruction of the temple to the second coming. 
James Edwards in his commentary on Mark writes, The events of the future are connected to the fall of the temple by the question of the disciples in 13.4. In the context of chapter 13, Mark employs these things or all these things with reference to the destruction of the temple, not the end of the age, not the end of everything, Jesus coming. Those days is a stereotype for the eschaton, the end of the world, and the prophets. And it appears likewise in Mark 13. Chapter 13 is thus constructed according to a two-fold scheme of tension and paradox. Um, where it's alternating between the immediate future, these things, the end of time, those days, these things, those days, in which the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem function as a prefigurement and paradigm for the parousia. Oh, fancy scholarly language. <laughs> Um, but basically what he's saying is 1 to 13 is end of the temple and fall of Jerusalem. 14 to 27 is tribulation and the second coming. 28 to 31, back to end of the temple and fall of Jerusalem. And then 32 to 37, watch and look for the second coming. So that could be one way of doing it. You're kind of moving his words around. One scholar in a critique of this view calls it leapfrog exegesis. Because you're just kind of going back and forth the whole time. But it's possible. And if you believe that that is the second coming, and if you believe that Jesus was talking about the, his whole flow of argument to say these things, then you pretty much, um, then you must have leapfrog exegesis. Otherwise, you've got a problem. But there's another possibility. It could be that the whole thing isn't about the second coming at all, but only about the destruction of Jerusalem and the enthronement of Jesus as the Son of Man and King. N.T. Wright says, What, after all, were the disciples waiting for? They had come to Jerusalem expecting Jesus to be enthroned as the rightful king. This would necessarily involve Jesus taking over the authority which the temple symbolized. They were now confronted with the startling news that this taking over of authority would mean the demolition, literal and metaphorical, of the temple, whose demise Jesus had in fact constantly predicted and which he had already symbolically overthrown in his dramatic action in the temple itself when he went in there and threw everything around. The disciples now heard his prophetic announcement of the destruction of the temple as the announcement also of his own vindication. In other words, of his own coming. Not floating around on a cloud, of course, but of his coming to Jerusalem as the vindicated rightful king. Um, and... So he believes that actually the entire, all of 13 from beginning to end is all about Jesus' coming um, itself and then about the destruction of the temple. Um, but what about that crazy language in verses 24 to 27? And it could be that that's Old Testament language, that it alludes to the language of the Son of Man and Daniel. It could contain various Old Testament allusions to the fall of political systems and the fall of Babylon. There's all kinds of spots in the prophets when they use that kind of language, not just to say that the sun and the universe is falling apart, but actually there's a political shift happening which feels like it's cataclysmic. So it doesn't necessarily refer to the end of the world and the second coming of Jesus. And you can, uh, let's see. Um, I'm going to read Daniel 7, 13 to 14 just because it's important. But also you can look at Isaiah 13:10, where that kind of language is used against Babylon. Isaiah 34.4, where it's used against all nations. But Daniel 7, very popular or noted verse 13 to 14. 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came out like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. So it could be that um, that itself, the Son of Man language, referring to the coming of Jesus and his enthronement, that is actually referring to his first coming and the enthronement then. I have another giant section that I'm not going to go over. Um, but basically another scholar says that everything up to verse 32 is about the destruction of the temple. Again, piggybacking on some of the prophetic language in Isaiah and others, that that section about gathering the elect and everything else in the clouds is not the second coming, but is actually the first one. Um, and again, it's not a denial of the second coming. Let me just make that absolutely clear. <laughs> not denying that the second coming is happening, but that that itself was not referring to that, but that it was referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. But there's a few different um, options and ways about that. It's, very, it's a complicated part um, of, of the scriptures. Um, let me read one little paragraph, then we're going to take a break um, from that, just to help a little bit there. Um, um, R.T. France, he says, A vision of Israel's triumph is transferred to a son of man whose authority is to supersede that which Jerusalem's temple has hitherto represented. In other words, all the authority lies in the temple, lies in Jerusalem, Zion. It's all literal. It's all right there. But then this is a transferring of authority to Jesus. And he is the center of everything that the temple represented. And then the temple is going to be destroyed. Jesus is the king. Here, for those who appreciate the nuances of the Old Testament language, is a startling statement of the idea that Jesus himself and derivatively the church, that international body of people who acknowledge his sovereignty, is now to be understood as the true Israel, the people of God, through whom God's earthly agenda, hitherto focused on Jerusalem and its temple, is now to be carried forward. So again, there's, there's a lot there. There's all kinds of questions about the end times and how that all works. <laughs> but but um, just maybe some of those you haven't heard before. Um, but that's that's some some stuff. So look at it, test test those things, and um, let's take a break. Did he emphasize eighty seventy a lot? Huh? Did he oh, emphasize? yeah. yeah. yeah that is, it's, it's, oh, yeah. Yeah, I've heard that. No, I know. It's funny because... It, yeah. I thought, you know, and of course, you know, Greek, Hebrew, you know, Seventy AD 
was a, it's not, it's not like a transfer like we think of transfers, but it was like the temple ends and now the focus is on yeah. the reality of what Hebrews said about Jesus. Yeah. I know it makes, it's funny because in certain circles like, well most, well like where I was raised, I mean, you never even heard about the destruction of the temple. You know, like, you, like you're not reading the Bible through that end. That that well, lens, well, but like there's Chuck Smith likes to leapfrog. Yeah, and a lot of people. Yeah, and, 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 you know, so well, oh, I've, I've always been taught when you read that, oh, that second coming period. I mean, coming through the clouds, ends, you know, it's all. But oh, and, he, and that tends to be more charismatic. Yeah, but it does. I mean, Jesus is it definitely helps if because <laughs> the whole it just feels funky when people try to move that this generation thing. <laughs> it just doesn't feel right when they move that all around. It is kind of, I don't know. Uh, number four, God's name is jealous. But God is love, and love isn't jealous. What's up? That's a theological contradiction. 1 John 4 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 1 Corinthians 13 4. Love is not jealous. Exodus 34.14 For you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. The answer to this is actually pretty easy um, when you use a human analogy. There's a way to be jealous for your spouse that is loving. So much so that not to be jealous for your spouse would be unloving. If your husband or wife cheats and you sit passively, in stoicism, no burning jealousy, you're not loving. That's not loving. Love is jealous when you are jealous for the sake of something good, but not for the sake of something evil. It is unloving to not be jealous and desire your spouse if your spouse cheats on you. When, we're, when we are jealous that something we do not have and have a right to that we want and burn with desire for it anyway, that that is sinful when we don't have a right to it. But when we're jealous for something that we do have and we have a right to and burn with desire for it, that's a good thing. That's a loving thing. Love is self-giving, but it can also be intolerant. It will not tolerate injustice. Love won't tolerate injustice. Love will not tolerate unfaithfulness. Um, Eric Thones author of a, of a really good book, actually, Godly Jealousy, A Theology of Intolerant Love. You want to read kind of a surprising book? Um, that's a theme that's not covered a lot. I haven't heard a lot of sermons on the jealousy of God. You probably don't hear that Exodus text quoted a lot. Wow, his very name is Jealous? What's up with that? Um, in an interview, um, he said this, Jealous is actually a very good English word to translate the Hebrew word um, in Exodus 34. Depending on the context... Um, The word can also be translated zeal or envy in other places in the Bible. Zeal is a general strong feeling to see something come about. Envy is a desire to gain possession of something that does not belong to you and is always sinful. Jealousy is a strong desire to maintain relational faithfulness which you believe does belong to you. Jealousy can be sinful if it is unwarranted or expressed in wrong ways, but it can also be an entirely appropriate and righteous emotion. We don't usually make a distinction between envy and jealousy, which contributes to the public relations problem jealousy has. God is righteous and loving when He demands exclusive faithfulness from His covenant people. 
Because God rightly loves His own glory and graciously loves us, He demands that we worship and serve Him above all. In human history, God is most glorified by the undivided devotion of His redeemed people. And His ultimate jealousy for His glory demands this devotion. If He did not care when we love idols more than Him, He would allow Himself to be dishonored and let us settle for so much less than we are intended to have from life. God's jealous love demands the best of us in our relationships. End quote. Snapshot from an interview there. But his book is, um, is quite good. Just kind of helping us work, work through that. That God can be jealous for his own name. He can be jealous for his people. You obviously can't read the Old Testament without seeing that. You can't read the New Testament without seeing that. Because the way and the lengths in which God in Christ goes to save his people from their sins. So, love is not jealousy. Paul is referring to something different, a different kind of jealousy. There's clearly a jealousy that is sinful. Um, and there is a jealousy that is, that is not. I heard one scholar talk about, um, I think Stanley Grins in his systematic theology. Um, he, he talks about how love, <coughs> how wrath is kind of the flip side of, of love and jealousy is kind of the linchpin that holds it together. Because when you're jealous for something, you can be, you can be wrathful and, and angry about it if it's for something that is actually good. And again, you see that with issues like adultery and all that. And then again, how often in the Old Testament, idolatry is treated as adultery. Because um, God is loving and committed to his people. And he's not happy when his people um, are um, committing adultery and prostituting themselves to other gods. And that theme is all over the Bible. <clears throat> yeah, some more water. Look at that. Does God repent and change his mind? Good question. Glad you asked. Um, there's a bunch of verses there. First um, Samuel 15 deals with that when Saul and Samuel, when Samuel is dealing with, with Saul. And also Exodus talks about that when Moses is entreating and praying before, before God. And there's these different parts where God is pictured as, um, depending on the translations, repenting, regretting, changing his mind, issues like that. I think up front, um, we just need to know that God doesn't change his mind in the sense that he alters his sovereign decree from eternity, from eternity, but he does respond to prayer and repentance in such a way that the Bible uses terminology like regret, to relent, to repent, and change of mind. God responds to prayer, and prayer changes history. God also experiences regret in the sense of grief, rather than the experience of oh, oh, I wish, I wish I would have done something else. I wish I would have thought it through more. I guess I'll change my mind now. That's not the way in which he, he experiences it. God always does what he says, and this is probably the key. God always does what he says, and one of the things he says he does is forgive when people repent. So if God says he's going to judge a nation, and the nation repents, God will not judge that nation. It is in this sense alone that he repents. Repentance for a human being is an internal heart change from what is evil to what is good. For God, He is not changing from something evil to good. He's still acting in accordance with who He is. He's giving mercy instead of wrath. That's who He is. So it could be said that He repents. But something internal isn't changing in His own being. 
acting one way and then completely acting a different way. Um, he's doing what he already said he would do and show mercy. Um, that's one way to kind of deal with it when, it's, when those passages are dealing with prophecies where God says, I'm going to destroy you. And then later they come back and they repent and then they'll say something like, and God changed his mind to do it. Or like I said, in Exodus I'm with Moses, that's one way to look at it. Um, there's one way in which God regrets, speak of the Samuel passage, in which God regrets Saul as king due to his turning from God. And there's another way in which God regrets nothing because he's not like Saul who lies. And that's one of the whole distinctions there. The regret of God leads to the rejection of Saul's kingship, but it does not require that God regret in a way that alters his sovereign plan or change his character. Like in the same way, the Holy Spirit can be grieved over the sins of God's people and say, you know, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God for which you were sealed for redemption. I think it's Paul that says that. Um, so, God, Holy Spirit can be grieved, but it does not adjust His plans due to the sins of His people. So, we can genuinely experience some kind of grief. And then you get into the doctrine of the impassibility of God and God's emotional life and how this works, and that's way out there. And I'm still... That's, and that's, there's some challenging stuff there. <laughs> um, but back to Saul. Saul is moving from following God to not following God. He's taking on a different character than he was called to emulate. God is not acting like Saul. Saul changed his mind from following God's way to his own. He, li- he, he disobeyed God. God is not a man, Samuel says, that he should lie or change his mind and repent in that way that he should regret in that way. He doesn't regret like, like that would. God always does what's in line with his character. And that's basically what R.C. Sproul says there. The biblical narratives in which God appears to repent or change his mind are almost always narratives that deal with his threats of judgment or punishment. These threats then, followed by the repentance of the people or by the intercessory petitions of their leaders... God is not talked into changing his mind out of his gracious heart. He only does what he promised to do all along, not to punish sinners who repent and turn from their evil ways. He chooses not to do what he has every right to do. The point of these narratives is to encourage us to pray or to make intercession. The promised threats of divine punishment are given with a condition attached that if we repent, we escape those punishments. Sometimes that condition is spelled out explicitly, while at other times it's merely implied. When we repent, then God removes the threat of punishment. The question is, who is ultimately repenting here? God never repents in the sense that he turns away from sin or error. In other words, he doesn't do anything that's different than his character. But I think one thing in those, with those issues is, again, you can emphasize the sovereign will of God so much um, in such a way that it can give an indication that can try to cancel out something like Exodus. You have Moses praying and pleading with God. God says, I'm going to wipe out the whole people. Moses prays. Moses pleads the promises of God. um, Pleads, what would the other nations think? He's kind of wrestling with God in that way. And then God doesn't destroy them. Now, was God really going to wipe out his people all the way off of the face of the earth? I mean, that, that isn't trying to get into all kinds of theological details in um, the narrative. Um, it's just speaking in a, in a certain, certain way. Um, because as we know, God had a whole plan from Adam to the, when he chose Israel 
to his whole line through Israel up to Jesus. Um, this, this whole plan has been going for a long time with a lot of different links. Um, and he wasn't just going to be like, oh, now I got it. Let's go ahead and do plan B now. Let's do C and D and E and F and G and down, down the line. Um, but, those, but those texts are just a great, um, a, a, a great spot. One, to learn about the character of God. And they can be a little confusing. Um, but also just to see just the way in which God interacts with his people. One, how gracious he is. Um, and two, just the way in which our prayer matters. In Revelation, it talks about prayer as incense and bowls um, with the saints. And then, the, and then it gets thrown on the earth and all the things break out. I mean, just the power of, of the prayer of God's people. Um, that the text can speak in that way. And we have to be careful not to minimize that. While also being careful not to take away from the character of God. As if God was a person. Just to be like, oh yeah, I'll change up one day, I'm down. Next day I'm doing this, next day I'm doing that. He's not a man that he should lie. That he should repent in that, in that way. Does God delight in the death of the wicked or not? Ezekiel 18.32 I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. And this death isn't just like dying. It's also just spiritual death. Deuteronomy 28.63 And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. He's talking to Israel right there. So does God delight in the death of the wicked or not? And the answer is yes. God delights to demonstrate His justice in punishing the wicked and God delights to demonstrate His grace in justifying the wicked that turn to Him and live. He can experience both ways as delight. There can be delight when we see somebody put to justice. There can be a kind of delight uh, that is there. There there can be a kind of pleasure that's there. Um, With God, there there can be a kind of pleasure. And there's another way in which He doesn't delight in any any of it. That that He wish all would turn and come to the knowledge of repentance. He sent a Son the good news, the gospel. Be saved. Turn from your ways and, and live. Don't die. He doesn't take pleasure. And then you read other verses. They don't do what he says. Um, they don't obey. And he takes pleasure in bringing his justice. So God can delight in both things. Jonathan Edwards talked about this. And rather than deal with him, John Piper, who's basically Edwards nowadays, um, put it like this. Putting it in my own words, Edwards said that the infinite complexity of the divine mind is such that God has the capacity to look at the world through two lenses. This is also what Pastor Bob was getting at last week. He can look through a narrow lens or through a wide-angle lens. When God looks at a painful or wicked event through his narrow lens... He sees the tragedy or the sin for what it is in itself. He's angered and grieved. I do not delight in the death of anyone. That angers me. That grieves me. 
I see that. But when God looks at pain or wicked event through a wide-angle lens, He sees the tragedy or the sin in relation to everything leading up to it and everything flowing out of it. He sees it in all the connections and effects that form a pattern or mosaic stretching into eternity. This mosaic, with all its good and evil parts, He does delight in. Psalm 115.3 So there is a sense in which God can delight in both. That's from his article, Are There Two Wills in God? And he uh, kind of addresses those, those things. Tough, tough issues. <clears throat> Number seven. This is a very similar thing. Dealing with the sovereignty of God. David's census and Judas's betrayal. I'm kind of linking them together. Satan's influence. David's and Judas' sin or God's sovereignty, which one is it? First one, David's census are those first Chronicles 21. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring a report that I may know their number. Then Second Samuel, the same event. This is the way... Samuel puts it. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. So let's look at the role of Satan, God and David in the census of Israel first. We have the author of Chronicles saying that Satan stood against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. The author of Samuel saying that God was angry with Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Why would the authors report this event in such different ways? And is it God, Satan, or David doing this? Good question. Glad you asked. (laughs) One of the reasons may be that the authors are emphasizing different aspects of the event. This is one way to look at it from, again, more of the author's perspective. The author of Chronicles may be emphasizing the sinfulness of David and the tempting influence of Satan, while Samuel may be focused on the judgment of God against Israel and the sovereignty of God over sin. The phrase again, look at 2 Samuel 24.1 again, shows that God was judging Israel. Earlier in Samuel, God was judging them with a famine due to Satan's killing of the Gibeonites. And we read that in 2 Samuel 21. 1 to 2. So, he says again, the anger of the Lord was kindled, connecting it back to 21. So, was it that God's judgment wasn't finished and this is another example of just the judgment or was it for something else that the text doesn't say? But Chronicles is showing this theme of God's judgment um, there in that particular spot of David's reign. We don't know which one, but we can see that Samuel is tying to is tying the themes of God's judgment together as a reason for the census. Sometimes God's sovereignty is revealed in His judgment. We know that happens. We know that happens in Romans 1 when it speaks of God handing people over to sin. That sin itself can be the judgment of God. Sometimes we view sin as just, oh, God's going to judge me, I'm going to go to hell or something like that. And Romans 1 makes it clear that sometimes... The sin itself is the judgment. And we see that, just look at certain 
You can look at some of the grossest ways of sin. I mean gross in the sense of, think of drug use or something like that and, and the pattern you can just see in the person's life, even in their demeanor, the way in which the judgment is the sin itself. <clears throat> On the other hand, Chronicles doesn't mention the activity of God and maybe this was because the focus is on the sinfulness of sin, the relationship of sin and satanic temptation and the need for atonement. And the reason why that may be is because Chronicles is focused on the building of the temple. The ESV study Bible says, the purpose of the narrative here is not only to recount and explain David's purchase of the temple site, but especially to expound the meaning of the temple itself as the place of God's mercy and forgiveness where sin is atoned for and its deadly consequences removed. Significantly, it is David, the principal model of seeking God in this work, who exemplifies the need for forgiveness, as well as being the model penitent. And that's because after the census happened and the plague happens and all these people die, the, the place in which it was stopped um, and the angel and then uh, the purchase of land, that's where the temple ends up being. So it could be that the authors have some different intents. Chronicles focused on the temple and Samuel focused on judgment and some other issues like that. So one can find reasons for why each author recorded things in a different way due to the uniqueness of the structure of each book. But we can also draw theological truths from this. The Bible teaches that satanic activity is real and that it influences the world and it also teaches that God governs all satanic activity. He can go no farther than God allows. This is why I think it was Piper again that said, Satan is on a leash. And even in the book of Job, we see that Satan cannot do things without God's permission. You read the book of Job and all the things that happen to him, Satan comes in the scene and that whole, that whole picture that God gives permission. This means it's true that we can speak of certain events as God's will and as Satan's activity. We can say satanic influence caused this or that, whatever it might be. But we can also say that God governs it all. Therefore, we don't have to go around correcting everyone if they say Satan influenced something. So certain groups, sometimes strong spiritual warfare groups, strong charismatic settings can speak of Satan's influence all the time without maybe as much acknowledgement at all to the sovereignty of God. And sometimes people with a strong high view of the sovereignty of God, never mention satanic influence. It's always, oh, God did this and God did that and God planned. It's just, God, God, God. Don't even want to even mention Satan. Both are wrong. Both, both extremes can be wrong. To deny God's governance over all things is not what the Bible says. Can't deny it. To deny the influence of Satan and demons is wishful thinking. So God somehow is sovereign over Satan's devouring work. We can speak of God's righteous rule, righteous and good and holy, and we can speak of Satan's unrighteous, wicked, destructive, devouring nature. And the tension is similar to human sin and divine sovereignty. This contradiction shows us that God is sovereign over David's sin. It's true to say that David, the human agent here, truly sinned. The sovereign influence of God and governing satanic influence of Satan doesn't minimize the responsibility of David's sin. Again, we have three things going on here. God governs, Satan's influence, you really sinned. You're responsible for it. The reason why God can be sovereign and man can be responsible is because 
God ordains sinful acts that men want. They're not forced against their will. They desire to do the evil that God brings to pass. Does that make sense? Not exactly. <laughs> but David's not a robot. He's willing. He's willingly taking a census. God and or Satan are not erasing his human agency. He sinned. So we see a similar pattern in the life of Judas and the way in which Scripture records his betrayal of a very similar pattern. And, and I'm not going to read all those verses, but we have the influence of Satan. Satan entered Judas, it says, before he betrayed him. We have Judas's willing consent. I think even one of the verses talks about he consented to go and do this. And we have Jesus's words that this all happened to fulfill Scripture. That, Satan, that a Judas betrayed Jesus in fulfillment of the Scriptures. What are the Scriptures? The, the prophecy of what God said was going to happen. So there's a sense in which we could say Satan did it, Judas did it, and God did it. And that's where we get into what theologians or philosophers can call primary and secondary causation. God can be a primary cause of something in a ruling way, but not a sinning way. He can govern the sin without sinning. He can be the primary cause governing sin for good purposes, like his glory and not sin. While Satan or humans are doing it for evil purposes, the end, the goal, is they want their desires met. I desire to do that, I want that, I'm going to get it. Now that's technical lingo right there. Um, <laughs> it's theoretically either helpful or not very helpful. <laughs> but it's not always practically helpful and, and Bob did a great job last week in just emphasizing the personal nature of evil. Sometimes when you talk about these we forget this is real people. <laughs> um, this problem is real and we all could fill in blanks in our own life of various ways of, of this problem. So we can't just deal with it in a philosophic way. And there's a great quote from Herman Bavink in there um, that I put just about when he closes his section on the providence of God and God's governance of everything. God lets the light of his word shine over all these enigmas and mysteries, not to solve them, but that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. The doctrine of providence is not a philosophical system, but a confession of faith. The confession that, notwithstanding appearances, neither Satan, nor a human being, nor any other creature, God and He alone, by His almighty and everywhere present power, preserves and governs all things. Such a confession can save us, both from a superficial optimism that denies the riddles of life, and from a presumptuous pessimism that despairs of this world and human destiny. For the providence of God encompasses all things, not only the good, but also sin and suffering, sorrow and death. For if these realities were removed from God's guidance, then what in the world would there be left for Him to rule? God's providence is manifest not only nor primarily in the extraordinary events of life and in miracles, but equally as much in the stable order of nature and the ordinary occurrences of daily life. What an impoverished faith it would be if it saw God's hand and counsel from afar in a few momentous events, but did not discern it in a person's own life and lot. It leads all these things toward their final goal, not against, but agreeably to their nature. 
not apart from, but through their regular means. For what power would there be in a faith that recommended stoical indifference or fatalistic acquiescence as true godliness? But when things go well and patient, when things go against us, prompts us to rest with childlike submission in the guidance of the Lord and at the same time arouses us from our inertia to the highest levels of activity. In all circumstances of life, it gives us good confidence in our faithful God and Father that He will provide whatever we need for body and soul and that He will turn to our good whatever adversity He sends us in this sad world since He is able to do this as Almighty God and desires to do this as a faithful Father. End quote. So we don't know all the reasons. We don't understand how the sin, the fall of man, the existence of Satan, the fall of Satan. We don't know how, we, how this all works. But we do know that God didn't deal with it in an abstract and philosophical way. Much of what Bob was emphasizing last week. And we know, the Bible tells us, that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world and in history on the cross of Calvary in the person of Jesus Christ. What's amazing is that God himself does not handle the problem of evil in a detached way. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility, God's power, his mercy, his justice, the problem of evil, it all converges at the cross of Christ. Acts 2, 22-23. Acts 2, 22-23. This is where all those things converge, all our questions. Peter, preaching. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So God predestined, God planned, God foreknew. You crucified. Both and. Both are true. In the worst event in human history, committed by the hands of sinful men, God planned to bring about the best result, the salvation of sinners and the glory of His grace. We learn that this was planned before the world began. Revelation 13.8 talks about the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Why would the lamb need to be slain before sin ever entered the world if God was not sovereign? After all, sin hadn't entered the world before the foundation of the world was laid. But God made the world to show the greatness of Jesus. You read Revelation. Show the strong, sovereign lion and the sacrificial, suffering, and yet resurrected lamb. John Stott said, We have to learn to climb the hill called Calvary and from that vantage ground survey all life's tragedies. The cross does not solve the problem of suffering, but it supplies the essential perspective from which to look at it. Since God had demonstrated His holy love and loving justice in the historical event, the cross, no other historical event, whether personal or global, can override or disprove it. This must surely be why the scroll, the book of history and destiny, is now in the hands of the slain lamb. He's speaking of Revelation chapter 5. And why only he is worthy to break its seals, reveal its contents, and control the flow of the future. So why the problem of evil? Somehow, I wonder if it's to highlight the beauty of God's mercy and grace. 
The sovereign power stoops. The Book of Common Prayer puts it like this. O God, you declare your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Romans 9, 22-24, which talks about the sovereignty of God. It talks about vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and vessels of mercy prepared for glory. The emphasis is on the mercy. The emphasis is on the grace. And it, as a way to highlight His mercy, maybe the closest the Bible comes to helping us. Romans 9, 22-24. Again, not an easy verse by any means. Romans 9, 22-24. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order, so that's purpose, the purpose, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. And He goes on to talk about Jew and Gentile. So maybe the biggest contradiction you face isn't in the Bible, it's in the world, it's in your life. How could that happen to me? How can this or that be? Working out the contradictions in Scripture or the problem of evil in our world and our lives is not the power of God for salvation. The good news of the Gospel is. That's where the power is. That's where it lies. Jesus is the object of our faith. Jesus is the center. Human history is about Him. It's about the Lamb. Colossians 1, 15-20 For everything was created by Him, Jesus, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things and by Him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile everything to Himself by making peace through the blood of His cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. It's God's Word. Amen. Two minutes for questions. <laughs> Any questions? Wow. Right. <laughs> Any answers? Yeah, exactly. Huh? I use them H H C S B. I I like that one. It's actually kind of a good. If you ever yeah H the H C S B translation. Oh, yeah, it's a good one. Um, so no uh, no I think I was I think I was looking for that one. I was looking at different translations. On that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Read different. Translations, it's, it's, it's a helpful thing to do. Alright, well, let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thankful that you are, you are good. And you're way bigger than us. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. They're high and they're big. But we're so thankful um, that you sent your Son, Jesus. So thankful for the Lamb that one day we will see and that he's going to have nail scars in his hands. 
And what else could there be with a history like this? And we just say, worthy are you, Jesus? You are worthy of praise. And would you help us in our weakness and all our questions? Would you come and help us to trust you in all things in life? In Jesus' name, amen.